This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. What's next? That's the question we have for tens of thousands of people who marched on Saturday across Colorado after the inauguration of President Donald Trump. Just in Denver, the crowd was estimated at more than 100,000 people, one of the largest marches in the country this weekend. Jessica Rogers helped organize the Denver event and joins us. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. What is your goal as a movement going forward? Our goal going forward is to get everyone in Colorado on the same page. We're really... Um, I wouldn't say concern, but we want to make sure that we don't divide into factions inadvertently, that we can combine as a group and then focus on different areas as a group. And we especially feel that as Colorado being a little island of blue in a sea of red, we really need to fortify ourselves because we need to become a regional representative of the mountain states. And you mentioned all of these different groups. You had uh, the march advocated for women's health issues, for racial equality and the rights of other communities that say they feel threatened by the new president's rhetoric. Uh, Mm -hmm. People advocate for environmental issues and for economic justice also marched. How do you keep these these groups that are seeming so separate together? You know, I think that is really tricky And that's going to be a challenge moving forward. Absolutely. Um, One of the things that myself and the other organizers kept referring to is that women are a part of every demographic. So if we just kind of keep hold of that thread of commonality, um, I think we can find a way. I know we can find a way. And you have another event scheduled for next Saturday. Uh, What's the goal of that? Correct. So the event for next Saturday, we're trying to keep it small just because it can get so loud so quickly. Um, But so we have a space that seats 200 to 250 people, and we're really reaching out to community organizers, um, leaders of organizations, just a few elected officials, um, and most specifically people that have already started their own small groups. A lot of small groups have popped up um, from this indivisible document. So we want to get people in small cities and communities that are doing this to come and join their forces and their voices. What is this indivisible uh, indivisible document that you just mentioned? You know, I'm very embarrassed to say I have not yet read it. From my understanding, it is um, White House staffers have put together um, a document of that's kind of basing a movement off of the Tea Party structure. I see. And, and what are some of the organizations that you're reaching out to uh, and, and some of the groups that you're reaching out to? We would really love to get a hold of Black Lives Matter. Um and we still have had a hard time contacting them. Um, we're gonna. We already have been in touch with a lot of Latin community groups, um, working with them on their concerns about immigration, um, talking with Muslim communities about their concerns with surveillance or a registry, and so working with each of these groups on issues that directly affect them. Earlier, you mentioned an island of blue in a sea of red. Uh, the chairman of Colorado's Republican Party, Steve House, says he doesn't think the march was strictly partisan, and, and he thinks there were probably some Republicans in the crowd and others who were conflicted about participating. I mean, the hard part about this is, you know, I know women who are Republican women who, you know, were not happy about the idea of Hillary Clinton as president, probably voted for Donald Trump. I don't ask that question um, so on one hand, they don't like the way, you know, the president presents himself at times, but at the same time probably supported him. And I think it's a question of how do I express myself in the context that I'm conflicted between I chose him, but I still don't like everything he says. Have you also reached out to groups uh, with alternate viewpoints uh, and, and asked them to work with you, people who are against abortion or, or Republicans, for example? You know, that is a great question. And when we were looking for speakers, 
we uh, contacted a few, two people um, that we knew that worked at the Capitol and asked them to suggest or recommend Mm -hmm. some Republican women speakers. And we just never followed up and never heard back. So that really is on us. But going forward, we would absolutely love to include um, Republican women, people that take up the discussion of abortion. And I do want to say discussion. And discussion as opposed to? To of having like an absolute belief one way or the other. I mean, abortion specifically is a very complex social topic. Do you hope some Republican lawmakers participating uh, will participate next Saturday in this in this uh, planning summit that you're having? We do hope for them to participate. Um, The invitation is largely um, so we can have them there to help us understand how to work within the party as it exists now. But it's not to have them really instruct the movement or tell us what to do. Just good input and advice. All right. And I'll say in general, uh, Steve House, Republican leader in Colorado, says he took no issues with the marchers. I think people have a right to express themselves. And especially now, I think it's important that they do, because there was so much emotion in what was going on in this election that it's great that people can come out and protest and, you know, deal with some of the emotion about what happened and, you know, a new president. And as long as there's no violence, I mean, I did see you know, violence and destruction of property in D.C. If that is not the case or not around, then I think it's great that people in this country have the ability to do that. And reports about the marches on Saturday said they were peaceful. Uh, But Jessica, is it fair to start this sort of resistance movement before the Trump administration has taken much action? Yeah. Um, And yeah, that's a good question as well. And I think for so we made sure our mission statement in Denver really said this is not a protest. This is a statement of vigilance of rights. Um, and we really – it's a very confusing time that we're in because on one hand, you know, Trump says we want to get the power back to the Americans and we want to get corporate money out of politics. And everybody agrees with that. But it's just how do you trust the messenger when it's – when he has such other – horrible rhetoric that is really offensive to lots of people. So it is kind of we have to figure out how we can listen and work with some of the things he says that we can really all agree on and separate out the more ugly things that really do not belong in American politics. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking with one of the organizers of Saturday's Women's March in Denver, Jessica Rogers. It drew a much larger than expected crowd, and we're asking her what's next for this movement. And I think a big question is, does this movement have a name? <laughs> um, that is a good question also. We're full of them. Um, <laughs> we've been calling it March On, um, the March On movement, March On project, and we especially like the ellipses at the end. because so dot, dot, dot. Yeah, yeah. You can march on whatever. Uh, well, and, and have you met with other march on leaders across the country since Saturday's event in Denver? I mean, is there a central leadership? Uh, yes and no. There's been um, there's a Facebook admin page that we all communicate on, all the sister cities. And then there's been uh, weekly phone calls for the last four or five weeks. And there's another weekly phone call scheduled for Thursday. Um, and I'm the representative for Denver and the weekly phone calls. So I think they're going to fill us in. With moving forward. Yes, and, for their plans. Uh, is is there a blueprint that you may be following from a previous movement in history that you've turned to? Um, because you sound like you may be worried that some of these groups may start to pull apart, that your your movement may fizzle. Yeah, and I know that there's been a lot of discussion about that about about that topic around mm. the marches. Um, and I, I do know that the indivisible document 
does um, reference the Tea Party structure and that it's small community groups, like 12 to 15 people, and it kind of just trickles up towards Washington is the idea. So I think that that's the strongest place to start is community groups. So using that Tea Party kind of idea in, in your group. Yeah, get get smaller groups, get them talking, pick a policy point every month, learn something new, read a one nonfiction book about American politics or just do something, get out there and do something. One professor at DU estimates that the Women's March, they may have collectively been the largest demonstration in U.S. history. I'm curious, why do you think turnout in Denver was so high on Saturday? Did you do something unusual to get so many people to turn out? Well, no, and I think that goes back to uh, I think it was so high because we are the mountain state regional representative of progressive people in the mountain region. I know for a fact we had people coming in from Nevada and Wyoming. So we we drew people from outside of Colorado. And that's why we had initially changed the name from March on Denver to March on Colorado. Mm. And we even thought about broadening that, but felt we should stay focused geographically. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jessica Rogers was one of the organizers of Saturday's Women's March on Colorado. The state Republican leader, Steve House, says he thinks Trump can win the support of people who are concerned about his rhetoric by, quote, governing well. House's priorities for Trump's first 100 days in office? Well, one of them is health care. Because Colorado has 425,000 people who get their health care benefits via Medicaid expansion. And if Medicaid expansion has a dramatically different future, how do you deal with those 425,000 folks? I think that's important. I think the tax reform piece is also very, very important. And I think, you know, some of the messaging coming out of the leadership once it's confirmed at the Senate, you know, and how they approach things like the EPA and what happens in education, all of those things are going to be important. And we'll be following these and other issues in the weeks and months ahead. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When fire tore through a converted warehouse in Oakland, California, killing dozens, the relatively unknown world of underground art spaces was thrust into the national spotlight. Here in Denver, two underground venues where artists worked and lived were shut down by safety inspectors. Artists say they were targeted. Officials say they're trying to keep residents safe. Now both hope to find solutions for affordable and safe housing, and they're trying to define the role a city can play to support underground art spaces and the people who live in them. We'll hear from an artist and the city in a bit, but first, we're talking with Michael Seaman. As a musician, he's performed in these underground spaces and slept on their floors during cross-country tours. Now he directs Creative Industries Research and Policy at the University of Colorado, Denver. Michael, thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. You're new to this role at CU Denver. Uh, you've been there since November. What's your research explore? Uh, my research primarily looks at uh, the value of uh, art scenes, uh, say like a music scene, and how it really operates somewhat like Silicon Valley. And because of the productivity that comes out of these music scenes, a lot of times it benefits the city as well as the scene participant. So is it more of a 
quantitative versus qualitative here? It seems like how can you measure something like that? Right, right. Um, well, it, I was in a unique position where I was receiving my uh, doctorate in urban planning public policy at the same time playing in uh, being very embedded in music scenes. So I was able to qualitatively uh, look at this and understand how these connections between the artists and musicians were made and see the companies that would spin out of that. I mean, if you think of bands as firms, you know, a lot of these scenes produce really uh, uh, successful firms. But there's also uh, firms such as um, uh, promotional companies, uh, graphic design companies. And then you have to remember too, a lot of people in these scenes, yes, they play music, but they're multifaceted. They're also the people that become graphic designers, commercial photographers, teachers, nonprofit administrators. So that also helps drive a city's economy. And you can then expand that out to arts in general in, in, in big cities in Colorado. And exactly, like exactly. And my next facet of research is actually looking at how all of these scenes, whether it's culinary, the arts, fine arts, digital arts, music, they all somewhat uh, work together in different ways. These underground art spaces are also called do-it-yourself or DIY venues. What exactly are we talking about here? Um, basically, you're taking uh, – any sort of um, structure out of the situation so that it's left up to the artist to define what is being produced, how it's being produced, and how it's being performed. Um, so a lot of times these operate off the radar. Um, they're not, say, like if you look at a music venue, um, you have places where they're selling alcohol to make the bills, which mm -hmm. is you know, that's how the world works. Uh, with underground all-ages DIY music venues, you take that out of the equation and you have all-ages so people under 21 can come, learn how to be in a scene, how to be in a band, oftentimes learn how to be a promoter and a manager. And with that, you have these communities that develop that also kind of push ahead all of the arts in uh, a certain city. It's kind of like the minor leagues uh, for arts and music. I, I see. And so how do these type of spaces here in Colorado – um, how do they compare to other places across the country? Uh, it's thriving. I mean, it's pretty amazing that Rhinoceropolis and Glob had an 11-year run. That's almost unheard of. And, and those this, are the two places that were closed in yes, Denver. Yes, yes, And it's um, – if you look at other cities, you'll have these scenes like, um, say, uh, the Mopery in Chicago. It had about a two-year run. It was great. Uh, they're like bursting stars though. They, they burn brightly disappear, but then, you know, they'll pop up somewhere else. So for Denver to be able to support one for 11 years is a testament to how important it was for Denver and uh, how much Denver supports the arts. And what do you see happening with these creative industries across Colorado? And, and then, of course, we're going to come back to the underground spaces. So what do you think about the, the, the creative industries as a whole in Colorado? Well, I think it's going to increasingly drive uh, Colorado's economy. Mm -hmm. um, the creative economy is increasingly larger across the entire nation. Uh, and as we go further into uh, this new digital age, you'll see cities also morphing to become more creative in general. And it permeates all levels from the economy to uh, the community development. So definitely increasing for you or becoming more stable for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Getting back to these underground spaces, did it surprise you when Denver closed these two large underground arts venues last month and later inspected others? Uh, unfortunately, because of the horrible uh, catastrophe that was Ghost Ship, uh, it wasn't surprising. In Oakland, California. In Oakland, California, yes. Um, I think cities across the country were uh, – unfortunately, many people in, in city leadership did not know these spaces exist. But as – 
someone that's involved in these spaces, uh, they've been existing for decades. I mean, you can go back to the loft jazz scene in New York City in Soho in uh, the late 60s, and that was a thriving DIY scene. Uh, unfortunately, though, you know, they're unfortunately, and I also say fortunately, they're now on city radars. And, you know, in Denver, we're all all hands on deck looking at this. How can we now make these sustainable? So that's what putting that that's what's putting these spaces in the spotlight. Is it anything else besides, of course, the, the fire that happened in California? Well, I think, too, you're looking at real estate valuations across the country have risen, and that's a, a shell on its own. But basically, real estate is becoming increasingly more valuable in Denver. We mm-hmm. all know this. And space is at a premium. And spaces that, uh, say, were off the radar are now increasingly on the radar. That's another reason why we have to proactively address this to make it sustainable. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm here with Michael Seaman, who directs Creative Industries Research and Policy at the University of Colorado, Denver. We're talking about Denver's underground arts scene. I want to bring in Stefan Herrera and Jill Jennings-Golick into the conversation. Uh, Stefan is a visual artist and experimental musician who's lived at the two Denver art spaces, Rhinoceropolis and Glob, that were shut down last month because of safety violations. And Jill Jennings-Golick is deputy director of Denver's Office of Community Planning and Development, and she was part of a public forum for artists and city officials last week. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, Stefan, what drew you to these art spaces? Um, what drew me there was the, uh, the sense of experimentation. And, uh, for me, I, I played a lot of my first shows at Rhino, at Rhinoceropolis. So that's where I kind of developed as an artist. Um, and that's what eventually led me to living there. Was it the fact that it was underground? It was kind of, you know, people didn't know it was there or or was it really that creative space that you felt when you walked in? Uh, probably both. Uh Um, I think... You know, part of the magic of Rhinoceropolis is that it was operating outside of the boundaries of, like, society or um, what is normally, like, culturally acceptable, um, like, in terms of music or art. What was it, what was it actually like working and living there? Um, it, was, it was magical. Um, I met a lot of, like, the most, I guess, the closest friends I have there. Um, had a lot of the best experiences of my life there. Um, kind of grew up there that's kind of like rhinoceropolis rhinoceropolis and glob are like my home still um and there's also a network of these of these spaces across the country tell me about that correct um so we host like touring bands from all over the country and all over the world and uh so i've made a lot of really strong connections nationally internationally um and uh learned a lot from artists um in that way yeah but but there were serious safety violations at these two locations that were closed down. Does that concern you that you were living in a place that potentially wasn't safe? Well, you say that, but I, you know, Rhinoceropolis and Glob have passed fire inspections for 11 years now. And uh, so we've always been aware or been on the city's radar in terms of safety. And we've always gone the extra mile to make sure that we are uh, passing fire inspections. And so really the reason we got shut down was a reaction to the ghost ship tragedy. And, uh, um, but we, you know, we passed a fire inspection this past year and, um, I don't necessarily, I've never felt unsafe there. And Jill, the, the city has inspected um, four DIY spaces in Denver since mid-December. And like you've heard, some artists feel targeted. Is, is that fair to say? 
No, um, we have a duty as the city to respond to complaints and referrals when we get them. Um, and the Rhinoceropolis and Glob was a referral from another agency. And so we had a duty to go out not knowing what these spaces were and, and objectively look at them and determine, you know, were there any safety conditions present. And last week's forum addressed safety. Uh, what were some of the city's primary concerns with these spaces? I think the main issues we found that that caused an immediate order to vacate at the Rhinoceropolis and Glob centered around a lack of egress, having two means, no um, working smoke detectors, carbon monoxide alarms, and then some pretty serious electrical issues as well. And are there immediate things that these tenants or landlords or, or people living there can do to get these spaces up to code? So we at the forum last week, we provided a couple handouts. I think what's important is there are some immediate things renters can do. Uh, check with the landlord. Do they have a certificate of occupancy saying that the space is allowed for uh, residential uses or assembly uses, gathering spaces? Um, you know, just do a quick check of the electrical systems. Do you see that there's open wiring? Do you have a problem breaker that's flipping all the time? That might mean you have an electrical hazard that could lead to a fire. Um, checking your exits. Do you have two so that people can get in and out of a space safely? Stefan, does that change how you view these spaces? Because there there may be safety violations or things like that that you may have to start looking at. Um, not necessarily. I mean, where I was living at Glob was a basically an ordinary apartment space above a warehouse. And uh, so I we were asked to we were evicted from that apartment and uh, we were completely, it wasn't as if we were living in a shanty town inside a warehouse um, with, you know, all these like recycled parts for rooms. Like we were in a just normal apartment space and it was absolutely absurd that we were evicted on the coldest day of the year. But I guess the question is with this, Spotlight. Do mm. you feel the scene overall has changed? Is there a different feeling? There? It's it's definitely changed. Um, we've had to come together and support each other like never before, and I'm like super grateful for you know our um, everyone who's hosted me and my friends in the past month and uh, given us the opportunity to have benefit shows around the city and uh, you know purchased our artwork and um, fed us and you know just came out and you know, showed support. And it's it's really like bringing us together like never before. Uh, no one really knows uh, how many of these DIY spaces exist in Denver. Denver Fire says it doesn't keep tabs, that it inspects uh, cases, uh, spaces on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis as tips come in. And artists are hesitant to put themselves out there right now for fear of losing their homes. Mm -hmm. uh, Jill, what does the city know about these spaces? I mean, we, we don't categorize DIY spaces. They're um, typically either known as commercial or residential. And so a lot of the times we're, we're hearing things about people living in spaces that, that weren't permitted for that. And, and what are your thoughts on that? That you may are essentially underground, right. as the name implies, and you may not want to put yourself out there for fear of losing your space. Yeah, I still feel that way. I think, um, you know, at this time, there's a lot of talk about us reopening um, to be in compliance with coding. Uh, and I think I'm, has, I'm reluctant to, to want to support that because I think, um, it, if we reopen and we're in code, um, we're going to compromise what we had, um, 
without artists living in the space, we're we're losing a lot of what made Rhinoceropolis special. So I think, you know, if if we do reopen that space, it, it's going to be a completely watered down, compromised version of of what it was. And I, I don't want to hold on to that or like be so nostalgic over what we had. I think right now we should try to start something completely new in a different location. And I think it brings up a good point, uh, Jill, Michael, uh, about affordable housing. It really seems to be at the, the heart of why some of these artists have chosen to live in spaces that aren't up to code. Yet this issue is not just unique to artists. Uh, what steps, Jill, is the city taking to address affordable housing for those struggling to find a place to live that fits within their budget? So, you know, Mayor Hancock has made affordable housing a key priority for the city. Uh, My department actually just this month started collecting the first affordable housing impact fees on new construction within the city um, with a a measure passed by city council last year with a goal to produce 6,000 new affordable housing units in the next 10 years. Um, we, as a city, have you know dedicated general fund dollars over the last few years to a tune of $14 million to help um, augment state and um, federal dollars to build affordable housing. We know it's a key issue for all of, all of our community. And, and Michael, you're working with uh, the cultural agencies for the city and the state to creative industri- Colorado Creative Industries and Denver Arts and Venue. And both groups are working to develop live and work spaces for right. artists. Uh, what can you tell us about the facility plan for Denver and how soon could something like that be up and running since like we just heard from Jill that it's going to take some time? Right, right. It's true. Um, well, there's art space. Uh, there's a development in the works uh, that will come online probably about 2019 uh, with in conjunction with arts and venues and now offer about 100 units of affordable housing for artists uh, specifically and it will be based on the median uh, income of a Denver resident. And so if you're looking at maybe 30 to 60% of the median income. Now, granted, I understand some artists cannot even afford that. And it's, that is understandable. But it's a step in the right direction. And it, it's going to help, you know, easily 100 artists. Uh, but the thing to remember is, and what I'm really excited about with Denver is, we're still ahead of this curve. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the median rents, Denver is still behind Portland, Austin, Oakland, Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, you know, typical creative hubs. And they're well behind. We're well behind that in terms of median rent in some cases. So we need to address this now. Art space is a great step in the right direction. But we also have to address um, how do we retain people that were at Rhinoceropolis? I mean, these are intensely creative people that will not all of them, but there will be a lot of them that do spin off um, new economic possibilities for the city and creative possibilities. It, it makes it for a greater city to live in. And what are your thoughts of this, Stefan? <clears throat> so I've heard about this art space development in Elira, which is north of Rhinoceropolis. And to me, it seems like a more of like a marketing ploy to gentrify Elira and to redevelop that neighborhood. And so... I don't I'm not interested as an artist I'm not interested in um in living in a place that's like marketed as an artist like live workspace um I'd rather cultivate my own space like out of my own initiative um without you know the city uh creating this like you know uh cookie cutter housing unit for for me to live in 
so one thing I'll just note, we, we in the city actually do allow artist live workspace as the only um, sort of residential live workspace in our industrial zone districts in an attempt to try to ensure that there are these sort of creative spaces where people can live and work and produce. Um, it, and so we think that is something that's out there. But we have to ensure that people are doing it safely. Well, and one Denver group advocating for artists is asking for more leniency when it comes to inspections. They point to Oakland, where recently the mayor's office called for a period of 60 days to comply for spaces that aren't up to code and don't pose an immediate threat. How flexible is Denver's city code? So we very much want to work with tenants and property owners when there is not a, a condition that is an immediate life safety hazard. So we'll often issue um, notices to comply and work with the tenants and the property owners over a certain period of time to ensure that they're moving forward to get the space into compliance. Michael, what are your thoughts on all this? You have an artist on one side, a, a, someone with a city on the other, and, and you're in the middle here kind of how – do, how do you put all this together? Uh, well, honestly, that's my job. Uh, I'm a conduit. Uh, I'm, I'm here to work with the city, the state, uh, the university, and I'm here because of – pretty much specifically because I was a part of these DIY scenes. Now that I'm here, I want to work with both the artists, the city, and come together. I have been uh, – already we've started meetings at the um, uh, arts and venues with uh, representatives of the DIY community. And, you know, Denver's real estate shot up quickly. And that is one thing that we all have to understand. And it, it unfortunately has negative externalities. In this case, the underground art scene is getting you know pushed in different ways. But we don't want to marginalize that. I personally do not want that to be marginalized. And I'm going out of my way to work with uh, arts and venues in a DIY community to find a solution. And the thing is, it's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to be easy. But I am – definitely uh, certain we can find something if we all work together. And that's what I want to do. And Jill, are you uh, trying to expedite some of the permit processes for some of these places? Yes. Uh, we at Community Planning and Development have agreed to um, anyone that's think they have a, might have an issue, we're willing to host sort of a, a pre-meeting so we can have all the agencies present to talk through what issues there might be because we know our process is complicated so that we can help demystify that for tenants and landlords. And then we're also, as permit submittals come in, willing to move those to the top of the line so that we can do our best to help get spaces and get people back in spaces as quick as possible. There's a question of responsibility here. Uh, who's at fault for these converted spaces not meeting code? Is it the artist? Is it the owners? Is it the, the landlord? Uh, Michael, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily someone's fault because, again, we're talking about something that's happened quite quickly. Uh, you know, when Osteropolis had 11 years, all of a sudden they're no longer. So this really did happen overnight in that situation. But there were code violations the city has claimed. Um, yes, but uh, you have a little bit of responsibilities on the landlord, a little bit of the responsibilities on the people who live there. I mean I have to say when I read the code violations for Anasaropolis, I literally laughed because they could have easily shut down the house I lived in in Denton, which was a residential mm -hmm. house for many of the same things. And in that case, it was – Somewhat the landlord's fault, somewhat our fault, but it was a residential structure. Jill? I mean, I think if, if we look at, at spaces around Denver, there are certainly areas where there's code violation. I think what's important for us is that we had a building that was a warehouse that people were living in that was never converted properly. So your, your house probably isn't up to current code, but it's up to the code it was built in at that time. And it, we consider it safe for those living there. Stefan, I see you looking at that and nodding your head. What are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> I just think that this was the... Just the perfect opportunity for the city to uh, 
sweep us out. And, you know, we've you look at the criminalization of homelessness in Denver right now, and this kind of I think this situation kind of resonates with the way that the homeless are being treated, even in the River North District. And um, it's easiest to manipulate people when they're in a state of shock. And we were all still grieving the loss of our, you know, friends in Oakland. And it was just, you know, the perfect opportunity for them to push us out because the city clearly has an agenda to redevelop uh, that block. And, um, you know, we, we're not profitable for the city. We're not, you know, we're, if anything, our way of life is a nuisance to the way of life of, uh, you know, the transplants that are flocking here. And, um, so that, yeah, that's but, how I feel. But the city's cultural agency, uh, known as Denver Arts and Venue, has devoted uh, $20,000 to help artists in need of affordable housing. I want to play a clip here. Here's Deputy Director Ginger White and how those funds could be used. That money could go towards the task force or, for instance, a fund that could help other spaces become code compliant or something else that the community has identified as a way to support the sustainability of spaces in and across the city of Denver. For comparison, Oakland's pledged $1.7 million to support affordable and safe spaces for its artists and cultural groups. As for Denver's $20,000, uh, what, what do you think would be the best use for that money, Stefan? <clears throat> well, um, for one, they could, you know, pay for the uh, licenses and permits that they're asking us to fork up money for. Um, if they really care about our safety, they could be, you know, helping us financially because they know we're economically like vulnerable. And, um, so I mean, Michael, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, we're on your side. I mean, that's one thing you have to remember. Again, this has happened so quickly, but working with arts and venues of which I'm partially representative of, I can tell you right now, we've had meetings and talks and discussions. We want to help. It's just brand new. So we know you have value to the city. And I mean, personally, I know this. My research shows this. We just have to get into what we're doing. It's going to take a little bit. I wish it could happen sooner. But this is what we need to do. This is great to continue this conversation. Jill, briefly. Yeah, I mean, I think just, you know, we definitely want to figure out a way to all work together to ensure that everyone has a safe space. And finally, what happens now that the city and artists have met? What's the next step? Well, I think there's been some discussion about the idea of forming a task force so that we can ensure we're all working together and hearing from the appropriate, um, you know, artist representatives so that we can understand what the issues are. This is, as, as Michael said, a fairly new issue for our agency. You know, we didn't know that these these um, issues were out there. So we're doing our best to move forward. Uh, I would like to see continued efforts on the city's part uh, to bring everyone from the DIY community on board in the discussions right up front. And Stefan? Uh, I think... You know, it's time for people to start having shows in their living room, um, kind of recreating what an alternative art space looks like uh, for 2017, uh, going back underground. Um, I think for a lot of like my brothers and sisters at Rhino, it's about setting our sights on what's next outside of Denver, because I, I don't feel like the city like values what we're doing necessarily. I think... Um, it's easy to say that after the fact, but, um, you know, 
you're not really looking out for our safety when you're evicting us. So. Thanks so much for joining us, the three of you. Yeah. That's artist Stefan Herrera, Jill Jennings Golick from Denver's Office of Community Planning and Development, and Michael Seaman with CU Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Ryan Warner. In Loud and Clear, we share feedback coming in from listeners. And my recent conversations with state lawmakers drew some responses. One of the segments had to do with a new Republican-led energy committee at the state legislature. Its chairman is Senator Ray Scott of Grand Junction, who is skeptical of the Paris Climate Agreement. We can't mandate to the rest of the world what they're going to do. Yes, they can sign something at a, at a, at a wonderful roundtable, but does that mean they're really going to do anything? Well, Aaron Overturf, chief counsel at Western Resource Advocates, takes issue with that. She tweeted, the Paris Accord is not the U.S. imposing its will on the international community. Just the opposite. It's a voluntary multilateral agreement among 197 countries. State Representative Clarice Navarro, a Pueblo Republican, was also on the show recently before she flew to D.C. to attend the inauguration. I asked her about a New Year's tweet from Donald Trump referring to his many enemies who lost so bad they don't know what to do. Orion, Trump's vision for America is more important than some off-the-cuff remarks. He deeply cares for Americans, and that's where he's coming from. And he wants to, again, keep Americans safe and you know, help America prosper. Won't those off-the-cuff remarks, though, become salient when he is president of the United States? Mr. Donald Trump has Americans' um, interests at heart. He is working to... Well, Julie Parrish of Denver emailed that the interview was, quote, frustrating to listen to. She goes on, I'm writing to compliment Ryan on his ability to remain polite and respectful in the face of non-answers. The repeated comment that Trump's tweets don't matter because they are off-the-cuff remarks needs to be interrogated. The use of that phrase itself is a normalizing gesture. The idea that Trump and his team aren't being intentional in their tweets is dangerous in and of itself. Some listeners took issue with our recent interview about an illness that doctors link to chronic marijuana use. Our guest, Dr. Kenan Hurd, toxicologist at the CU School of Medicine, says it leads to uncontrollable vomiting and that he and other physicians are seeing the condition in ERs. Paul Murren of Boulder writes, I have been a regular smoker my whole life, and so have most of my friends, and I have never seen this happen, not even close. Seen plenty of people puke from drinking too much alcohol, though. Maybe the doctor should talk about that, end quote. Our guest did contrast the condition with alcohol poisoning, which he says is far more common. We also got feedback from Paul Rennix of Longmont. He writes, hysteria, no established correlation to pot, and if there were a correlation, no study of the particular pot being ingested by these patients to determine if what was being used had been tainted by pesticides or other substances. This is a particularly poor and sensationalist piece based on nothing more than ongoing reefer madness. And from Bill Norton of Denver, I hate to say this, but I consider this fake news. The doctor had no serious info on this. He has admitted it. Most of what the doctor said on the radio story was simply speculation without proof. I say until you have something solid on this with significant data, stop covering this story. 
We did fail to mention Dr. Hurd's published paper on the condition. We regret that. You can find a link to it at cprnews.org. We also presented these concerns to the doctor, and he responded. I'm not sure what standard they're looking for in terms of proving it. We certainly need more studies to better establish the link, determine risk factors, and course. However, the best advice we have for people with these symptoms is to try stopping and see if they get better. There was this praise, though, from Kelly Fox, who called the piece important. I am a nurse practitioner and a supporter of legalized marijuana. I have had patients with all of these symptoms that have undergone every possible test, revealing no clear explanation. Although a substance may be benign in the majority of the population, there's a chance some people might react badly. I find it difficult to convey this message to patients, and hopefully this piece will shed more light on the topic. In another interview, we talked about higher education and how Colorado students pick up more of the cost as the state pays less. Our guest was newly elected CU Regent-at-Large Heidi Ganahl. You know, I have a business perspective, um, and, and that's how I tackle this issue is look at, you know, you either have to create more revenue or drive down expenses. Those are the two levers you can pull. She says universities should partner with the private sector to make money from academic research. But that concerns Irma Sturgill of Centennial, who writes, To involve business any more than we already have in academics further intensifies conservative efforts to influence thought on campus and in classrooms. It is my view business should stay out of academia, government, religion, and health care. Moving on now, if you want to buy a car from a dealership on Sunday, you can't in Colorado because it's illegal. A state agency is recommending that that change. We did a story about it, and it got Amber Morian of Denver thinking. She's married to an auto salesman. She says dealerships should remain closed on Sunday. People who work in the car sales industry work long, stressful days where every day and month is a matter of sink or swim. They work every Saturday and holiday except for Christmas and Thanksgiving and frequently miss breaks, meals, family events, their children's milestones and activities. Sunday is the only day they are guaranteed to have off. And without this recovery day, there would be a huge threat in our community because spouses and loved ones of those in the car sales industry would go bat guano crazy. Bat guano, she said there, to avoid a swear word. Speaking of swearing, it's something my colleague Nathan Heffel asked two comedians about. Shana Firm and Tracy T. of Denver created the Pump and Dump National Comedy Tour, in which they poke fun at motherhood, and they use profanity. Well, Twitter user at Holden's Mama tweeted, Did you seriously just ask them why they swear? Would you ask male comedians that? The question gave us pause, but we think the answer is yes, if it had been two dads doing comedy about fatherhood. When we shared that response on Twitter, at Holden's Mama tweeted back, It came off as tone deaf. Parents swear too. Normally, you're spot on, but not this time. Keep your feedback coming. We are at Colorado Matters on Twitter, CPR News on Facebook, or comment beneath individual articles at CPRnews.org, where you can also shoot us an email by clicking contact at the top of our webpage. Nathan, back to you. Thanks, Ryan. There's one event at CU Boulder that everyone's talking about this week, a visit by conservative provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos Wednesday night. The gay British writer has made a career of attacking political correctness in ways his supporters find funny and opponents call hateful. Protesters hope to stop the event. CPR's Sam Brash looked into who's bringing Yiannopoulos to campus and why. 
Turning Point USA didn't start out in Boulder. It's actually part of a well-funded national network of over a thousand chapters at U.S. high schools and colleges. The group aims to rebrand conservative values for the Snapchat generation. So I'm Nick Reinhardt. I'm president of Turning Point USA at CU Boulder. Reinhardt is the sort of college sophomore who wears a black tie around campus, even when he doesn't have class. He first learned about Turning Point last fall. Um, I saw them at the club fair, and it looked like you know a great organization. They pride themselves on innovative uh, marketing. They have Socialism Sucks, kind of a take on one of Bernie Sanders' logos. I love capitalism is another Turning Point catchphrase. Their slick marketing references everything from Game of Thrones to Parks and Recreation. What drew me in is that it didn't deal too much with social issues. It's solely about, you know, the fundamental conservative ideals, I guess, of free market and limited government. Reinhardt was quickly elected president of the chapter. Other students already wanted to bring Yiannopoulos to campus. Reinhardt signed on along with the college Republicans. Chris Cole leads that group. By being bold and inviting kind of a contentious speaker, we're showing that, yes, we do have the right to, like, be, you know, Republicans on campus. And Yiannopoulos certainly is contentious. During a talk at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, he showed the audience a photo of one of their peers, a transgender student on campus. Have any of you come into contact with this person? It's just a man in a dress, isn't it? Turning Point's Reinhardt hopes Yiannopoulos doesn't single out students when he comes to Boulder. But he says it's important to keep in mind that Yiannopoulos doesn't always mean what he says. It's often comedy, meant to provoke a debate on free speech. We just want to present an alternative point of view. We don't want to necessarily convince anyone of this point of view. But students against Yiannopoulos says Turning Point can't distance themselves from the speaker they invited that easily. Charles Wofford is a musicology grad student at CU Boulder. He's organizing a protest. TPUSA strikes me as a, as a hypocritical organization. Wofford points out that Turning Point is also behind ProfessorWatchlist.org. The written purpose of the website is to, quote, expose and document college professors who discriminate against conservative students. Wofford doesn't get why some students should be protected. But when it comes to someone like Milo, who harasses and, and attacks people and is a provocateur, then he's defended on grounds of free speech. Jordan Buckman, a junior at Fairview High School in Boulder, is also a protest organizer fascism cannot be defeated through debate at the ballot box. Fascism has to be defeated through direct action. Protesters at the University of California Davis managed to stop Yiannopoulos from speaking earlier this month. Buckman and Wofford hoped to achieve the same thing. But their own efforts were disrupted when some students they didn't recognize showed up to a planning meeting. I don't even know if they were going to tell us they are from TPUSA because the guy just introduced himself as Nick. And then someone asked, oh, like, what's your last name? It was Reinhardt, the turning point president from earlier in the story. They talked for a while before the protest organizers asked him to leave. I asked Buckman and Wofford if they'd be willing to talk with him again while I listened. Yeah, I think so. I don't know how productive it'll be, but sure. Yeah, uh, that's exactly my comment, too. So I texted him, and a few minutes later... Good to see you guys. Likewise. Thanks for Thank you, me. definitely. Reinhardt showed up, and he and the protesters spoke for more than an hour. They didn't come to any conclusion as to what should happen Wednesday night. But Buckman, one of the protesters, had a suggestion. If the true goal of this event is to start a discussion, why not just have a panel and put Milo in the panel where his voice is one of a number of people? I mean, I think that's a completely valid point. And actually, Reinhardt says he does want to put together a panel for students, about whatever happens at the Yiannopoulos talk. Is that something you guys would participate in? From the information that I have now, yeah. 
I can't make any promises, but I am interested. We would love it. Honestly, I mean, this is... The way I see this is it was my attempt to kind of make the best out of the situation. So maybe people can get something out of it. Yeah. But for now, Turning Point USA isn't bringing a quiet political discussion to Boulder. Yiannopoulos is on his way, and the protest plans are set. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. You can hear more of the conversation between the head of CU's chapter of Turning Point and the protesters who want to disrupt his event at CPRnews.org. And that's our show. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.